Welcome to the Leader Think Podcast, where we discuss personal growth and concepts for improving organizational culture. This is your host, Philip Grison. As you increase your wisdom, I hope you enlighten others on your path towards greatness. If you want to go further, head over to leaderthink.com. Hey, everybody. Today we have a very special guest. We have Brendan Baker with Valuable Change, and he has written a best-selling book, also called Valuable Change, has his own company. And um, throughout his career, he's learned one important thing, and that's to keep it simple. Um, but we're probably going to get into some complex topics, and then Brendan's going to tell us how to keep those simple. Um, one passion he really has is helping change leaders drive valuable results. And a, a lot of leaders do want to make changes in their culture and their organizations, but they, they struggle with change. And, and that is uh, Brendan's expertise. Um, and throughout his career, um, he's had a knack for seeing through complexity, which is very important when we're trying to make change. Um, and another skill of his is he knows how to take complex things and make them accessible to people. And especially for uh, the front line or, or, or uh, front management, um, frontline supervisors, sometimes in upper management, we can have some great big complex ideas, but feeding them down to those who do the work can be a challenge. And that is another expertise of his. Um, and that all comes to helping his clients put all these complex things together in a cohesive way where they can drive valuable change. So welcome, Brandon. How are you doing today? I am well. I am well. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful Friday morning here. Awesome. Well, um, you know, I tried to give you a, a really good introduction there, but tell us more about yourself. What would you like to tell everybody about who you are and what you offer? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, you, you touched on it already, uh, but I'm highly passionate about change leadership. Uh, but look, I've I've been in that change field for the, the entire my entire career, and, and to be honest, it's probably no surprise. I, I'm I was as a child, I probably I went to five or six or seven different schools. I think yes, and probably about seven different schools, and so change was just part of life. And then it wasn't until later later on, maybe perhaps late teens, when I was looking at careers, that I realised, hang on, not everyone has. Uh, sees changes as this part of life that people don't don't have that immediate click and so I was actually initially drawn into project management because I thrive on diversity I, I thrive on variety uh, and uh, and it was through project management that I discovered change leadership and I discovered really that the art form uh, that that is there and and so I've I've consulted or directly led across over ten billion dollars worth of projects uh, programs portfolios at um, across all kinds of industries, uh, public infrastructure, social policy, uh, uh, process overhauls, restructures, uh, shared service implementations, and, and also some, some interesting, unique ones, uh, things like mass at scale archive cataloging uh, and, and a few other quite random things. Uh, but, but what it shows is that really these principles of change uh, apply uh, no matter where you are or, and, and no matter what you're trying to achieve. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, um, one thing that that come and I relate to you because I've been to a few different schools myself, and and adapting to change has seemed to be part of life. Um, but one thing that comes up is sometimes we have clients and they see a need for change, and then we start talking about change leadership and all of those things. But 
aren't we always in a constant state of change? And, and shouldn't we, we accept that, that it's not like we're doing well and okay, now we need to change, although a lot of people see it that way. But in reality, we should embrace change as a constant through all stages of an organization. Absolutely. And, and it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I literally wrote that uh, on, on, an, on an interview I was doing yesterday. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a written one. And uh, I wrote, you know, the, it's the old adage, change is the, is the only constant, right? But th- there, is, there is an add to that. And, and the add to that is change that is beneficial or change that is good for us typically comes, uh, number one, uh, it, it's better if we instigate it. Uh, but number two, it typically flows through ripples, and, and three key ripples. Uh, so it typically starts inside either ourselves or or our, our insert inside our change itself in terms of getting that change core clear and strong. Uh, and then it ripples out. And then it, it, you tend to then have this change momentum piece, which would be if we're talking organizational change, then that's very much your change team. And we'll probably talk more about momentum as, as this conversation evolves. Uh, and, and then finally, it'll ripple out to outside of your change or even outside of your organization, depending on the context. Uh, but it's that ripple effect. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, change change management, change leadership, they're all popular terms today. And uh, I'm a fan of Cy Wakeman and her book, No Ego, where she talks about how a lot of times organizations see it as this isolated event, but we need to move towards it's in a, we're in a constant state, but you're right that it it seems like we gain awareness to the need for change. And then that ripple effect starts, right? So, um, okay, well, let's dive in. What do most organizations when they see a need for change and they want to implement change, what do they get wrong about that change? Uh, look, that's that's a very simple one. Uh, they jump straight to the what. They jump straight to the what. Uh, and, and by that, I mean they jump straight to solution mode. Uh, we, we go, oh, look, we've got a rough idea of, of a change needs to happen. Okay, well, what do we need to do and how much is it going to cost and, and when do we need to do it? Uh, and, and, and it's really interesting uh, how often that happens. Uh, but what you're actually fundamentally doing is you're short-circuiting your well, basically you're short-circuiting that connection between the value of your change and what you plan on actually delivering. Uh, and, and so, you know, pulling this back to simplicity, uh, I've got, I, I tend to recommend what I call the three valuable questions. And, and the, into- the order of those are intentional. Uh, when we're looking at change, we really need to be looking at, number one, why are we doing this? It's the old Simon Sinek, start with why idea, but, but it, it, it's got legs. It's absolutely got legs. Uh, and that's where we need to start. That you then need to answer, what does success look like and how will we prove it? And then finally you get to, and what exactly are we doing? Which breaks into the, how much is it going to cost? And when is it going, you know, when are we going to do it? Uh, who do we need? Uh, those types of questions. Uh, but but the, the order is intentional and we really do need to start with that, with the why flow through to the success definition and proof. And then, and only then should we get to the what? You know, I, both those are interesting. So the why we need to change, there is a little bit of a sales pitch with change, isn't there? That we are selling it to employees of the organization. And um, I like how you mentioned proof. How do we prove the value of change? Brilliant question. Uh, and and to be honest, it's, it's highly... Uh, it's highly context specific, uh, but what what uh, there is a trap that a lot of change leaders fall into, and that I call it the money trap. In that 
because so many change leaders feel that because we're investing money in this, we need to have a monetary return. And so there's efforts to translate every possible metric into dollars. Uh, the problem is that majority of the time, they're imaginary dollars. Uh, they're, you know, we're saving 10,000 people a minute a day. Uh, and, you know, yes, sure, in theory, but that with extra minute a day, they're probably just going to go make themselves a tea or a coffee or, or something. It's, it's probably not going to translate to that, you know, $10 million uplift in productivity that you're expecting. Uh, and so it's all about breaking out of that money trap. And, and it's, it's about admitting that it's okay to change for a reason other than monetary return. There are other reasons why we would want to drive the change through. And then it's about looking at, well, how do we actually define success? Uh, and it's, it's a direct and connect relationship to the why of the change. If you've got a clear why, it's a fairly, uh, it's a fairly easy thing to do to then go, well, okay, well, uh, you know, why are we doing this? Well, then here's the proof. Here's, here's what success looks like. Uh, you know, if, uh, I mean, you're in the safety field, so you'd, you'd probably be able to talk more about that one. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure there are tons of metrics uh, in, that, in that safety arena. And even in the arenas I'm in, even when we're talking cultural, uh, cultural uh, change and, and restructures, and uh, there's always a, a way of putting a, an indicative metric on it. So we can start to predict and monitor and ultimately measure what the future is going to look like. You know, I was reading one of your your blogs before uh, we got on here today, and um, it, it triggered a thought that on measuring this, this proof that what we do these safety culture assessments where we give scores to different drivers of a, a safety culture. And so we kind of show the proof of the change through that, that we'll measure the culture and then we'll do it again a few years later to see if they have any proof of change. And you said something interesting in your blog about gut feelings. And it just triggered a thought because I see a lot of times our clients will do another culture assessment and they'll compare those, those numbers. They're looking at the hard numbers and sometimes they are focusing on did we increase by 1.2 or something like that. <laughs> but you mentioned what's the gut feeling? And that's so true. Do we see the change with our eyes? And it's good to have gauges. It's good to have a compass. But if real change is happening, you're going to see it and your gut's going to tell you what's happening. Absolutely. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and I'm so glad you said that because uh, I realized now what I've said, just said, may be misconstrued to, to me, me thinking, oh, no, we need to have a number for everything. And that's absolutely not the case. Uh, and especially when you're dealing with people and especially when you're driving cultural change. Uh, and the blog, the blog you were probably looking at was is the talking about change momentum and talking about team and change momentum and the path in that. And, and we might talk about it in a tick, but um, one, ultimately one of the best measures for gauging cultural and team momentum is the leader's gut feel. We, we as humans have this amazing ability to read each other. And, and it's part of our, I guess, our evolutionary advantage in terms of um, our cooperative nature and, and our, our ability to, to coordinate and, and, and work together as a, as a community. And part of that has come out, uh, this ability to read and understand each other. Uh, and everyone has varying degrees, but either way, it, it's built in. It's part of our human nature. And so we, we shouldn't be discounting that. Uh, and, and so as leaders, if you spent longer than two weeks with your team, you're probably getting a pretty good sense. And so gut feel is, is quite a powerful, uh, absolutely a powerful measure. Uh, but I would, I would add one caveat or suggestion there. 
in that have a frame or a, a benchmark to put it against. And I'm not talking necessarily metrics. Uh, and so, but have have perhaps some categories on a wall. Where does my gut feel feel that we are? And so you do have a, a loose rating system uh, because then it allows you to show that progress. Uh, but you're, you're right. We absolutely shouldn't be t- uh, discounting gut feel. You know, I'm... There was something else you said in, in uh, one of your blogs or, or in your book and, and about um, when we're selling change that we need to talk about what's in it for me, right, as the employee or the individual. But that's also not the full story. So could you expand on that just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, when it comes to change, and the, the industry rhetoric is very much uh, what, what's in it for me? It's that idea of what's in it for me. And how, how do we get how do we get people to do things? And and it's and it's it's I, to be honest, I applaud the initiative because it's trying to generate that empathy for the impacted stakeholders. It's it's a great thing, you know, the impacted teams, the impacted people. Um, what's interesting though is that uh, there have been studies in behavioral science uh, that show that it's actually not the full picture. So I can't remember the, the, the college or university, uh, but I know it was over there in, in the US, so kind of your part of the world, not, not mine. Uh, but, but, but it was really interesting. So, so the behavioral researchers um, in, um, well, as again, I can't remember where. I, I could probably look it up, but it's in the book. So you could pick up the book and, and check it in there. But they were actually doing some research into uh, chronic pain and people's response to chronic pain. And the, the, the existing rhetoric in, in that in that scientific field up to that point was that uh, people will do anything they can to try to avoid pain. And it's fairly logical. Uh, we don't like being in pain. Uh, but, but these researchers posited a slightly different idea uh, in that we only avoid pain if we don't have a good enough reason to, to overcome it, uh, i.e. that there's actually a motivational conflict at the point of every decision. And, uh, and so, so they went about testing it uh, and they got two groups of students. Uh, the first group, which we will call the poor souls, they hooked them up to a, uh, a series of, uh, well, basically a series of machines that uh, electrocuted them uh, and asked them to complete uh, number and letter-based tasks, you know, one plus one equals two, those type of things. Uh, and for every second answer they got right, they would get a zap. A mild zap, but they got a zap, and it was but enough that it was painful. Uh, and this and is it. torturous. That, it is. That's right. Yes, <laughs> a form of torture. Exactly. Uh, and so, and, and that was it. And what they found was that, unsurprisingly, the students did very little, achieved very little of, of those uh, number and letter based tasks. Then they took a second group, and we'll call them the uh, the well paid poor souls, uh, because then we'll what, what they did with that group is they hooked them up to similar machines, but they also introduced some new elements. Number one, they introduced a point-based system. Every time they got a correct answer, they received a point. Um, and for every point they received, it correlated directly with how much they would get paid at the end of the study. And so they introduced both a gamification system in terms of points, uh, which allowed peer comparison and and things like that. You know, how many points did you get? Oh, I enjoyed way more pain than you, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> but they also introduced a monetary reward. And so those two elements in play, that second group, again, unsurprisingly, achieved far more 
in terms of the, the, the tasks than that first group. And so what, what that really shows is that, you, uh, that pain is, is not the only narrow way to look at it, but also reward is not the only way to narrow, the only narrow way to look at it. They're, they're both parts of the same motivational conflict. They're both parts of the same equation. And so I deciphered that down into essentially what I call the value equation. And it's reward minus pain equals decision. Nice and simple. But it's you build that in to, to your change and you start to get that full picture. And no longer is it what's in it for me, because uh, that's only half the question, but it's also, and what's the pain we're expecting them to overcome in order to achieve that pain, uh, achieve the, the outcomes rather that, that, that we're looking for. You know, okay, so that's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of times, uh, uh, I forget where I heard this, but um, it, it has appeared to be true in, in my life experience that most people interpret change itself as pain. And when it comes to like an organizational culture improvement effort, um, they interpret we're going to change as more work for the same amount of pay, threats to their role in the organization, those kinds of things. But that's that's interesting how, yeah, there's there's pain there. But what's the reward and does the reward overvalue the, the, the pain they're feeling? So, yeah, very interesting concept there. Love Absolutely, and and look, I'll I'll add on a little bit, uh, in, just f- for your listeners. In that, there's actually for what I've found, there's actually three types of rewards, uh, and, and they have, I guess, different different um, payoff periods. So um, you, you have the rewards that pay off uh, or that build motivation almost immediately, uh, and and they can often be uh, fear based or immediate money, like or immediate um, immense. Uh, reward base. So a few examples here is, let's say an auditor is coming through. An auditor is is creating a fear-based but quite an immediate reward style uh, in that it's we need to get everything in place so that, that we get the reward of not getting uh, scolded by, by the auditor that's coming through. And so you rapidly, all this rapid motivation, get get all the documents done or get whatever else we need to get done so that the auditor can come through and get tick, 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 and we're, we're happy happy and um, yeah, we're happy and hunky-dory. Um, th- what's interesting is that after the audit is done, motivation for, for that outcome or that decision falls off dramatically for six, nine, 12 months until the next audit. And we're then there it goes again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and what's interesting, it's the same effect when you, uh, when, when you look at money. Uh, if you're actually looking at a monetary reward, it's, it's a similar short-term burst because we humans adjust and adapt quite quickly. Uh, we, we naturally will adapt to a higher monetary status quite quickly. Uh, and so if you offer more money or a big pay rise or anything like that, uh, it's, it's, again, only a short-term burst. More the, money, the, the alter- more, new bills, new mortgage, right? New car Exactly payments. right. Yeah. Yes, yes, right. yes. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the, the other, the alternative in that space is uh, the longer lasting rewards. And, and that, that they're ones that tend to click into the more intrinsic motivation. Uh, and and the, the challenge there is that everyone has a different intrinsic motivation. Uh, Can you and, give and some examples of those, that, Brendan? Because that, that's a, yeah. I think that's it. You're you're nailing it. That is the the most important value. Those long term rewards. So, could you give some just grassroots examples of those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, look, 
In fact, an interesting study, uh, again, on this one, um, back out of the change arena, but it's about lifestyle change. Uh, and again, can't recall where the study was done, but it was a study done on long-term exercise habits. And and if you're looking at, so, so there were two groups and they basically looked at, uh, they, they surveyed two groups and there were people that uh, embraced exercise for a short amount of time. Uh, and there were people that, that embraced exercise for a long amount of time. The people that were short uh, for the short amount of time that ultimately dropped off uh, and, and stopped the healthy lifestyle, stopped the exercise, they were people that were um, had that short-term reward in that they were worried they were going to get scolded by their GP uh, is the essence of it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's probably not so overt in their own minds, but th- that was the reality of it. Um, well, the longer term, it was found that they were motivated by uh, collaboration and coordination with with their peers. So it was it was a community aspect, uh, and it was making sure that number one that they're they're um, they're keeping up with the rest, but also uh, number two that it actually has this positive feedback loop within the community. Uh, but the other one was um, overcoming challenge uh, and and proving they can do it. Uh, and there was a third in there as well. Uh, but, but the essence is that that it was essentially talking to what drives them internally. Uh, and, and it's the same in, in our organizations. Um, what's interesting though, and, and I'll, I'll posit this, uh, you don't have to only focus on those long-term rewards though. It, it's, it's perfectly okay to have some of those short-term rewards mixed in as well. And it's all about, which is why I boil it down to that value equation, reward minus pain equals decision. Because you can stack the rewards you can basically stack the deck in your favor. You can have short-term stuff and long-term stuff and you know, doing work with co-design or, or, or engaging early means you're going to get a better sense of what is the intrinsic drivers for these people. And, and so you start to stack the deck and then you look at the, at the pain side of the equation and, and you look at, well, how, do, how can we minimize the pain of the change? How do we make this as easy as possible for them? And that's how you stack it. In, in your favor, essentially. I, I see exactly what you're talking about sometimes with our clients that um, th- there's this concept of the dopamine hit, that sometimes when you give someone the small responsibility that works towards your goal that you can win at, you get a dopamine hit. And so maybe they passed an audit for, let's say, with your previous example, and there's a little dopamine hit. But then where you want to move to is the dopamine of the actual doing. Right. And, and so just like your exercise example, some people get the dopamine hit when they lost five pounds on the scale. But the long term, those who stick with it, they get the dopamine hit from going jogging. Right. Yes. They don't even care about the scale anymore. It's the doing. Yeah. And, and stacking those together. We need both, don't we? We need both. Mm. Well, I'm okay. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, things that people get wrong about change. Um, You know, we've been talking about that. Philip Atkinson says that it's the emotional element that most people struggle with, that a lot of organizations are so numbers focused that leadership is always looking at that analytical, technical, rational view. But it's the emotional element where most people fail. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and so that really is, uh, I talked earlier around the ripples of change. Uh, and I mentioned you know, that, that change call, which, which really is those three questions that, that, we've, that we've already touched on. Uh, now we're talking about uh, an area that's, to be honest, it is mostly ignored uh, by, by the change industry. 
uh, I mean, there are project managers, there are, there are stakeholder and change managers, there are benefits managers, and, and all of these um, areas are very deep in complexity and narrow in focus. And, and it's a change leader's job to be able to look beyond and look broader and uh, and and look across those three those three ripple areas and and this emotional element or what I call change momentum uh, that's that's that second ripple area and so uh, you know talking about having a frame in place there's a frame that I tend to use here for my clients and I call that the momentum path and and it, and it is and I talk about that in my book as well and so if if you imagine um, Imagine an XY axis, and on, on your X axis, you've got uh, energy, and on the Y axis, you've got hope. And as basically, the greater the energy and the greater the hope, the, the greater the change momentum. So as both expand, you, you get this lovely momentum growth. Now, uh, I'll, I'll kind of clarify these terms a little bit. Uh, hope is essentially an optimism for the future or opt- optimism for what you're doing. Uh, and energy is... Uh, is closer to how you would describe a, a four-year-old. I've got a four-year-old. Uh, so uh, closer to how you Me would describe too. a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> they bounce off the walls and they always seem to be climbing on absolutely everything. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting uh, that, that you want your teams and, and, uh, and employees and staff to, to be climbing on the walls. Uh, that's probably not particularly good for safety. But uh, uh, what you do want is that, that high-energy approach. Uh, and so, so that that's our X Y axis. Now, in terms of thinking around momentum, uh, there are essentially five stages that you can work through, uh, and you could be you could be in. And we're looking to move through them. The first few stages are despair uh, and and fearful. And we've probably all either been in a team or uh, seen vicariously uh, a team that is in despair, and and you could see them because. Uh, they don't like coming to work. They're, they're, they're not particularly excited by what they do. Uh, but the key factor is um, that they feel stuck. Now, coming back to, you know, if you do want to look at metrics, and, and I do, momentum path is the kind of thing you should be gut feeling. But if you do want to look at metrics, there's a really easy metric for you to look at when it comes to identifying teams or people stuck in that despair area. And that's they have no leave left. They've taken all their sick leave. They've taken all their annual leave. They've taken all of that because they don't want to be there. Um, yeah, 5, 5 p.m., they're already halfway out the door, right? That's exactly right. Door. Yes, yeah. yes. 4.55, they're packing bags. Yeah, exactly right. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's that group um, that, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. That's, that's your bottom of your energy. That's your bottom of your hope. Um, and, and the reason why they're there is they're stuck. They don't want to be there. They're stuck. Now, the trick with that group is you need to give them an excuse for hope. You, you essentially need to work on hope before you can work on energy. And so if you imagine the X, Y axis, it actually tends to, um, if you draw an imaginary line heading up, it's not at a perfect uh, 45. It, it's actually going up through hope first and then over to energy. And so that's your first focus with those with these groups that are stuck in low momentum, despair, or, or those that are driven by fear. You need to be building hope, and and a, a, a nice way of doing that is uh, you need to give them an excuse to to have be hopeful again. If they don't see that anything is changing, uh, then what? Why should they have hope for a better future? And so you need to give them that excuse. And, and typically you want to make that excuse as physical as possible. 
almost a, a tangible routine breaking style change. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe it's moving where, where the team sits. Maybe it's pointing them to a different manager. Uh, whatever it may be, it, it has to be a physical, more tangible style change. That's enough to give them that excuse for hope. Now, the challenge here for a change leader is that they're, um, you're not going to see the hope. They're going to be just as cynical the day after you move them or they're going to be just as cynical the day after they've got the, the, that new reporting line uh, as they were the day before. But it's, it's a tiny seed. It's a tiny flicker of hope. You're showing the then potential. You, yes. Exactly right. Yes. And, and it's almost like you need to give their brain something to go, actually, you know what? Things might be different. Uh, it probably won't be because I'm highly cynical and I'm in despair, but it might be. Uh, and then, then you build on that, and then you start working on the fears. And there's a multitude of fears that that are at play, uh, and, and we probably won't have time to delve into all of them. But we essentially need to work on the fears. And the way you start to work on fear is you build, start to build in a culture of openness. Now, the culture of openness essentially means normalizing failure, and normalizing success, and normalizing reflection, and incorporating them and embedding them into your day to day. Uh, or definitely week to week as a minimum. And, uh, and and as change leaders, being the first to put up your hand and say, I'm human, I make mistakes, and here's the funny thing that I learned this week, and, and leading the way for them. You know, Brandon, um, okay, I know you're going to go further down this path mm. that we, we – but um, a couple things come into mind. So like with our clients, sometimes what we see is um, that, that fearfulness and a lot of times the – top leaders aren't communicating with the frontline folks and giving a little bit of hope, you know, more presence out in the field environment, more openness and how they carry themselves and, and talking to frontline folks could plant a seed for that hope and, and uh, give them that little seed that, Hey, maybe things are going to change, but I think we could show them a little bit. That, that's definitely a good one. I'm, um, and then, you know, we're, we're moving into to beyond hope into what? What are we moving from hope into? Yes, yes. So we move from fear into hope. Uh, and so the third stage is, is hopeful. Uh, and typically that's where all of your new starters uh, start. Uh, they'll come in and they'll have, they'll have plenty of energy in the bottle ready to go uh, and, and they'll have plenty of hope ready to go, but it won't be to the point where uh, that they're screaming your name from the top of rooftops. Uh, because it's not yet proven. And so that's 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 your next stage up. If you can start to overcome the fears, you start to get to a group of people that are hopeful. Uh, and th- what follows hopeful, hopeful is then motivated. And I mean, Dan Pink does wonderful work uh, in, in around um, you know the, the motivation there, around what rewards us and, and what drives us and whatnot in, in that space. Daniel Pink was, and drive. Yes, yes, yes. Yep, that's right. Yes. Yep. Fantastic book, uh, and and I've I've personally found it to be to be to be true across the changes in my experience. Um, he's yes, he's absolutely nailed that. Uh, and then finally, what's interesting is that there is actually a step higher than motivated. Uh, you know, so often as change leaders or, or, or leaders in general, we think about, oh, how do we motivate people? How do we get them to do the, you know, do the things that we want? And uh, number one, we could look at value equation. But, but number two, um, it's actually not the ultimate end goal. Because when you're driving a change, you, uh, you essentially need to build up some emotional capital uh, as much as you possibly can, because you are driving something that is inherently painful. 
And so you need to look at as many types of these rewards as, as absolutely possible. And so what you want on your side of what I call fanatics, essentially, if you can, you want to build a, a, a team of, uh, especially inside your change, you, you want a team of fanatics. And so the, the fifth stage is fanaticism. And, and, it's, and so getting to fanaticism is really about building beyond that motivation to, uh, to that sense of belonging. And so there, there are essentially two elements that we need to have in place there. The first is, is belonging. Uh, and, and when you think belonging uh, and you think fanatics, uh, think of you know, those Potter heads for Harry Potter, you know, the, the people that ended up minting J.K. Rowling close to a billion dollars, uh, or, or even those people that, that camp out the day before to pick up the newest iPhone. These people are fanatics. Right. These are people that are that no matter the, the pain they're expecting to endure, these are people that are, that are turning up and doing it. And the value occasion becomes almost non-existent for a fanatic because they're, they're so obsessed. And so that's what we need to eventually, we, we need to target for our, our change teams is that fanaticism. And so we do that, number one, by building belonging with them and finding ways to uh, help them label themselves as part of the change. Uh, and and I, I talk in my book about strategic labeling. And, and, and helping them feel, know their part and see where they fit and, and build that belonging as part of this, this, this moving forward. The other element in, in fanaticism is what I call positive disruption. Now, positive disruption is essentially uh, moving beyond expectations and doing things differently in, in a positive way. Um, now, it, that can take a multitude of forms. Uh, if, if you're in an organization that is typically quite flat and, and democratic, then positive disruption in that case would be a leader that knows exactly what they want and knows what they're driving. and is very, very clear in, in getting that through. Now, if you're in an organization that's the opposite to that and it's highly bureaucratic and stacked miles high, then positive disruption in that case is creating a culture of, of, um, of high openness and very flat structures within your, your change itself. Uh, whatever the case may be, you need to be thinking, how do I surpass and break expectations here in, in, in a positive way? Because what you want to do is you want to give these people that were already previously motivated, you want to give them something to talk about. You want to enable them to talk to their peers or talk to their friends and family that, and, and say something along the lines of, these guys at work are doing something pretty cool. They're doing something different. Uh, and it's not just that day to day. And then it, when you couple that with a sense of belonging, that's when you get these uh, these fanatics. And these fanatics go go a long way towards driving that change adoption through your organization when you get to that third ripple, that that broader organizational ripple. Because what you're starting to do is, uh, you know, you're building passive, essentially passive marketing within your organization. You're building that word word of mouth marketing uh, for your change effort. You know, um, in one of your blogs, you uh, for fanatics, you used the term evangelism. And I, I love that, just that. And that kind of ties back into what we were talking earlier, that um, sometimes people get the dopamine hit from passing the audit, but can we get the dopamine hit from the doing? And, um, you know, can we create little evangelists throughout the organization and, um, you know, when you were talking about labeling people, I noticed in, in some of your, your writings, you talked about labeling people as the X expert. So we could have the coaching expert. We could have the, uh, 
um, you know, different types of experts there. And, and that's tapping into, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs there, of filling purpose. So I love all of that. Um, I'd like to shift into team building. And as Jim Collins says in Good to Great, right, that when you're building a team, there's different people that buy into different stages. Um, uh, you know, there's the, I'm using the term, term super fans that Marie Forleo likes to use, but you, you have super fans, you got the fence sitters, you got the resistors. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Because not, not everybody's going to be a fanatic right away, right? Some mm. will change at different time periods. So can you talk about how to perfect that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's interesting. I, I, I might actually challenge a little bit of your language there. Uh, so you said the word perfect. Uh, and, and that's something that um, I think as humans, we, we have a tendency to strive for, uh, but ultimately is unattainable. Perfection is, is ultimately You're unattainable. Right. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> Perfection. Yeah. Well, you said it earlier. We've got to embrace the failures just as much as the success. That's exactly so, right. Touche, Brandon. Right. <laughs> but, but look, coming back to it, um, I, I think the right frame here is, um, is what you want to be doing is you want to be building momentum and then protecting it. And, and so, uh, you know, as a change leader, have that momentum style model or whatever, whatever, whichever model you want to use, but have that on the wall so you can regularly check in and, and assess, you know, where do I think my team is and what, therefore, what is my next step? What's my next focus? It gives you that lovely direction. But the, sec the, the second aspect of it is you need to protect from sliding back down the momentum path because speaking frankly, as, as anyone that has been through change, even people that thrive on it like you and I, um, change is hard and yeah. change is difficult and change takes an emotional toll on the people that are driving it. It does. It, it, it just does. And so there is this natural um, uh, basically pullback, this decay is, is the word that I'm looking for. There is this natural momentum decay um, that we need to do our best to, to protect against. And, and ultimately, I find the best way to counter decay is actually through building in learning mechanisms and continuous improvement mechanisms into your change. And, and we've talked already about normalizing failure and normalizing success, and that goes a long way towards preventing that decay in momentum uh, because, number one, it allows people to be heard, but number two, it allows them to disassociate themselves personally from the difficulty of, of the day-to-day -day. and it puts it into perspective but also allows them to to see that future forward uh, you know so one of the key a really cool way of normalizing failure is um, running what I call a failure session which is a, a once a week uh, very informal get everyone together and we all uh, essentially celebrate what was the biggest value we've had this week and and what did we learn from it you know, and, and you keep it really tight and you keep it really lighthearted. Uh, and there is a massive caveat on that. Don't don't run that in a team that's going to end up becoming into a condescending style accusatory. Uh, if, if your team is that, uh, you're not ready for this yet. You've got other work to do. Um, but, but in a high-functioning, motivated team that, that there is already some decent camaraderie, a failure session is great at preventing that momentum decay because it allows them to essentially get that failure out of their system. Uh, and, and I actually tend to run it with a whiteboard or a virtual board or whatnot, and, and, it, and you pop it on the board, biggest failures from the last week, and it, it becomes lighthearted and it, and, it, and it becomes normalized. 
which is really powerful. Um, and then what you do is you leave the failures and, and the corresponding lessons on the week uh, for the week on, on the board uh, and you revisit it and, and you kind of, if, if you're all located together, uh, everyone can walk past it and see it and it becomes very normal. Failure is equally as normal as success. And then you revisit it next week and you say, well, what do we learn? What do we learn this week? Uh, and, and keep growing forward in, in that way. Uh, and doing so helps hem off that decay. You know, um, that, that concept, there's something we teach in advanced safety management. It's the concept of drift, that all organizations and individuals tend to drift it's just innate, the motivational triad, right? We got to find an easier way to get the job done. And so it is natural. I also like how, um, you know, failure and success are pretty much just intertwined with each other, right? They're, they're important. They're two versions of the same thing. Um, but with drift, we have one, uh, just kind of like what you were saying, we, we have one client where the plant manager has what's called drift sessions, and so the plant manager will get all of the employees and he'll ask them, where are we as an organization drifting to catch how that momentum is decaying, as you say. And then I love what he does next is he then he asks the individuals, where are you personally drifting? And it's just normalizing failure, right? That failure yes. is part of success. We, we have to normalize it. It's it's not that we're bad. It's just how you get to success. So mm-hmm. awesome. Love that those uh, concepts. Um, okay, so here's one. W- what I've seen is that it's all about leadership at the top. It starts there, and then it starts to flow downhill from there, um, hopefully in a good way. So what are the elements that every change leader should have? What, what are the key ingredients to a great change leader? The key ingredient is to a great change leader. Uh, it's funny. It's it's actually, it's not something that's something like personality. And it's not like you have to be an extrovert or an introvert or, or, or you know, whichever personality style uh, analysis of which there are multitudes out there. Uh, th- there is no one type of person that's a phenomenal change leader. Because even if you look at the people that are changing the world, uh, they're all different personalities. They have different traits and qualities that they're bringing to it. And so it's it's not something that you're inherently born with, which is great. It's encouraging. Uh, so when it comes down to a change leader, um, they're, they're people that can think through and drive that clarity across those three ripples, in, in my experience. It's the ability to look broad and not get stuck down in any one uh, I guess any one silo, you know, the what we're doing or the who we're talking to or, or whatnot, um, but it's that ability to, to think broadly and then drive that uh, that change across those ripples with with immense clarity uh, around the that change core, uh, or that why. Why are we actually doing it and keeping that value front of mind? I mean, so earlier I mentioned the three valuable questions. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? What does success look like and how will we prove it? And what are we doing? What's interesting is that when you're actually mid-change, those three questions evolve. Uh, why we're we doing this becomes, is the why still valid? And yes. are we still, is this still needed? Uh, because a powerful change leader is, is, is one that's able to actually look at a change and kill it off if it's no longer needed. Uh, but I, I put a number of warnings around that, though, in that that's one of the hardest decisions any change leader can make. Uh, and and I've seen time you and time are, again. Sorry. Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt too, but you are so right that um, 
sometimes we implement changes and we find out that they're not valuable anymore or just that we have transformed as an organization and willing to kill it off. I love that, that mm-hmm. we got to be, some people want to never get rid of a policy. They want to keep it forever, but you're right. Are we willing to kill it off? And, and the other thing you mentioned too, that, you know, the, the why is going to evolve, right? Yes. That when we change, we're all evolving new technology. We're always going to have what we think is the best thing in the world to do today will evolve, won't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you just have to look at the tech industry to get a really quick and immediate sense of that. Right. <laughs> All, All right. right. So, so the why yes. evolves, we got to be willing to kill it off. And what else yes. do we have to do? Well, that, that's right. Yes. So the why evolves, we need to be validating, continue, continually validating the why as we go. And, and if the why is no longer valid, we have to be willing to, to pull the trigger. Um, now, the other two interestingly evolve as well. The, the what does, how will we prove it and what does success look like? Uh, that evolves into, well, one of the early indicators starting to say, are we actually making a dent against the why that, that we're anticipating? Uh, and so it's, it's starting to do that future forecasting on that as well. And then the third one, the what are we doing? That one's, that one's the one that we probably are already asking. And that is uh, the, are we actually progressing as expected? And, and that's, you know, that's your standard old status reporting. That's all of that kind of thing. Um, but a, a, an effective and strong change leader knows that that is that third tier. And that tier one and tier two are built on the why and are built around the proof. And getting right. that order right and driving that clarity through. And then using that to campaign into a, a team of fanatics. And then using that to campaign across into the broader organization. Uh, and and leverage uh, influence across the organization. That's right. Yeah, um, you know, I love too. You're you're uh, not getting stuck because a lot of people do get stuck on little things within a change, and and that broad view um, and moving forward is so imperative. It really is. Well, Brandon, that this was awesome stuff. I, I definitely feel a kindred spirit with you, and uh, th- this need for change we see it and being. <laughs> <laughs> not not uh, not more accepting of it, but making it just part of how we operate. Um, any final thoughts? Any any final things? Final takeaways that uh, you want to give our listeners? Uh, I, I I really like uh, I, I really like uh, what we started with, and I really like what you just mentioned around this idea that look, change is is the constant, uh, and and look, we we all fundamentally fear change, and there's some lovely reasons for that, but but ultimately. Uh, change is the constant. And so what we need to be driving, thinking about is rather than how can we dodge the change and how can we avoid it, but rather how do we embed change leadership throughout our organizations and how do we distribute that through? I mean, so I've been talking about change leaders almost as a specific role and it probably sounds like uh, I, I can be talking just about executives or, or, or high-level managers or whatnot, but, but that most certainly doesn't have to be the case. Uh, change leadership is the kind of thing that you can actually distribute and embed throughout. And so when we're talking, you know, when I talk to momentum, uh, there is no reason at all why every individual in your organization can't have their own momentum assessment that they're doing themselves on a regular basis. Uh, and there's there's no reason that that every employer in your organization can't have their own change core uh, that that why, uh, you know, answering those three questions, that, that why success and and what. Um, that there's no reason why they can't be using that in their own work as well and helping that to continually to refine uh, and uh, their their own outcomes. 
Because when you've got that nice and clear and strong, you can trim off the stuff that's not needed. And so there's probably going to be some lovely efficiencies that come through that. And that's so right. that's that's the power of of thinking through these models and distributing throughout and even on an individual basis. I mean, even, even myself in my own business, I use that change core model with every single one of my clients. We build up front, we answer the why, we figure out what success is going to look like, and then and only then do we look at, okay, well, what are we doing and what, how are we actually going to get there? And that I, I use that off. as the yes, yes, exactly <laughs> right. Uh, and so it's it's a it's a very strong and useful basis, not just for those that are that are sitting in the nice chairs, but but those that are uh, that are th- those that are around everywhere. Uh, the frontline supervisors. Just, exactly yes. right. Yes, that's right. Exactly right. Those in the field, those on the front line, uh, they're still useful tool sets, even even just on an individual basis. Yes. And, you know, those kind of things, I think they help people at, at work, but they help them in their personal life as well when we, when we grow them. And, and, and yeah, like you said that, uh, you know, regardless of how wonderful our CEO is, it's those frontline supervisors that tend to have the, the most direct influence on the workers, right? So we definitely need those change uh, teams and, and deliver those concepts to them as well. Well, that's great. Okay, so um, you've got a number of useful tools. We've got You've got a whole blog on your website, valuablechange.com, and we'll put that in the show notes. You also have a best-selling book on Amazon. We'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes as well. Um, but you also do consulting with, with companies. And uh, anything else? Do you do any uh, seminars or present or anything like that? I, I do, yes, uh, speaking as well. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy I enjoy speaking, uh, and and I, I really enjoy that that whole thing. So absolutely, um, workshop speaking. I'm currently in the process of converting Valuable Change into an audiobook. So depending on when this releases, it, it may already be in audiobook form. Um, and also uh, looking at potentially online learning in the near future as well, and looking at some some deployments in there. So lots coming. Uh, but in the meantime, yes, uh, feel free to reach out. Speaking, um, you know, e- even on a virtual basis. Uh, I'm more than happy to to get up at 4 a.m. if I need to to chat to my international <laughs> colleagues, uh, and uh, and 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 yeah, I, as I said, working with change leaders and, and fostering that change leadership in our organisations, not just uh, in the fence for those sitting in fancy chairs, but distributing throughout. That is so awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brennan. It's just been quite a pleasure talking to you, and uh, hope to chat with you more in the future. Sounds good. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you learned something valuable today, please share it with others. For more information, head over to leaderthink.com.